0: So, tonight, we're going to do a hybrid Bible study. We're going to end 1 Peter and do the last few verses in 1 Peter, which are not super practical. They're historical, and they'll help us understand the Scripture. And then we're going to step into 2 Peter. So, it's really about the letters themselves, not in super detail, but uh, I think that we'll get something out of it either way. Um, So, if... uh, you will join me with a word of prayer and then we're going to conclude these verses in first peter father thank you so much for the uh, folks that are gathered here this evening i thank you for those that are uh, joining us uh, through youtube and uh or who may join us later uh, maybe it might be weeks or months or even years from now but uh, your word is unchanging jesus you said that uh or it is said of you that you were the same yesterday today yes and forever uh, you said that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never pass away. Well, uh, this is this is the inspired word of God, and we seek to understand it, and we seek to receive whatever it is that you want us to receive. I pray that you, you move uh, my personality out of the way to the side and uh, just speak through me in whatever way you choose this evening. pray that you'll meet the needs that are here uh, for young people who are Uh, starting school again and it's back to the online grind or just all of the changes and the just strange way of doing school right now, um, it requires discipline. So Pastor Craig's sermon on Sunday should be uh, something that I think will help all of us because we've got to apply self-discipline if we're going to move forward. Uh, It's not going to be done for us. We're going to have to step up and and, uh, do the work that's necessary. And so I pray that uh, you will meet the needs. I pray for Jacob's health. You continue to surround him with your protection. Um, I pray that you will help us to have a a proper perspective on this pandemic, uh, that we won't just treat it like it's absolutely nothing at all because it does uh, adversely impact some people. But I pray that we won't overblow it like so many people in the world are and run around scared and uh, whatever it is that we might do. And uh, I pray that we will we will be courteous and kind to other people. That we won't uh, we won't judge other people because of how they are handling this, what they are doing or not doing, and uh, just open our eyes to what you want us to to learn uh, through this whole pandemic process. I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. So last week, uh, really really good scripture. In fact, I'm going to back up and read last week's verses just so that you can get. Uh, that encouragement again. Um, 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while... The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And as I indicated last week, uh, the New American Standard Bible says, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Um, Now, the Lord is going to always be working. While we are working, he is working. In fact, I like... Uh, there's a, uh, a devotional writer named Oswald Chambers, and I've gone through his devotion, My Utmost for His Highest, on, I don't know, four or five different occasions since I was in my 20s. So you might, you might write that down. My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers, right? Old school, standard devotional, uh, where you read a, a verse, and then uh, Oswald Chambers comments on it. Um, but he said... <clears throat> In a, uh, in a devotion that I think was over Philippians 2, 12, and 13, where the Apostle Paul says um, uh, that he wanted the Philippians to be as active in his absence as they were in his presence, right? And then he said, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work in you to will and to work for his good. So Oswald Chambers said it like this, we work out what God works in. And I think you're going to see how that connects when we get to Second uh, Peter. Um, I'm not going to get to those verses this week, but if you can kind of log it in the back of your mind, we'll get back to it in two weeks uh, in Second Peter, and you're going to see how Peter talks about uh, building on your faith. He says, to your faith, add virtue, and to virtue, add knowledge, and uh, to, to knowledge, add perseverance, and so forth. Um, so we're working out what God is working in. So we're told here, uh, you know, to resist the devil. We're told that God is going to, after we suffer a little while, and what does that mean, suffer? Suffering trials. And as I mentioned last week, I mean, we're going through a little bit of suffering with this pandemic. Some people have had it worse than others financially or health-wise. But it's a a very minor thing. If you haven't yet, I want you to read about the often-mentioned 1918 flu pandemic because it was really bad. So the, the, what they said COVID was going to do, that's what that 1918 flu did do. Millions of people died, right? Many, many millions of people died. Um, and uh, even that is not as bad as the bubonic plague or the so-called uh, black plague that happened in the Middle Ages, so it is estimated, be, be, be ready for this. It is estimated that up to half of Europe died as the result of the bubonic plague. Half. And it is a horrific, horrific thing. Now, if COVID was that, we would have every reason to be as, you know, heightened in our concern as, as we have been to shelter inside and don't leave your house and you know, so on and so forth. But COVID is not that. So we have gone through some minor trials, comparatively speaking. Um, but more than the types of trials we're going through, as in you know uh, a loss of income or not being able to go to school or maybe you went through some symptoms, maybe you had uh, we've had a number of people in our church now that have had it, and it's been very minor for all of them. But again, that's not how it hits everybody. But this is a time of testing and a time of trial, and that's why I went through First Peter, because 1 Peter's about suffering. But he promises us here at the end, after you've suffered for a little while, after you've gone through a, you, this trial for a little while, or this temptation, the word in Greek, can be temptation or trial. After you've gone through that for just a little while, relatively speaking, then God himself will perfect or restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. That's good news, isn't it? That's what's offered to us, right? So then the letter ends, this is verses 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You're like, oh, well, what are we going to get out of that tonight? Well, let's find out. Because I believe that whenever you read the word of God and you pay attention, the Lord will speak. So let's look at these people. Who is Sylvanus? Any, any, any ideas who Sylvanus is? Say it again. It's not Timothy, but he was a companion with Paul and Timothy. This is Silas of Paul and Silas fame. So Paul went on the first missionary journey, They left Antioch, which was the first um, Greek city, the the first non-Jewish city to receive the gospel, became the epicenter of um, the the gospel to the Gentiles, right, the first Gentile church in Antioch, and... um, The Apostle Paul was brought to Antioch by Barnabas. That was Barnabas' nickname, essentially. His name was Joseph, and he was from the island of Cyprus, so Joseph of Cyprus. But everybody called him Barnabas because Barnabas means son of encouragement, which is, by the way, what I used to call Vernon all the time. I used to call him Barnabas because he was an encouraging man. This, this was our 96-year-old friend that passed away in March. Uh, he was very encouraging to me in particular, but to our congregation as well. Barnabas, boy, it'd be great if people knew you as a Barnabas, wouldn't it? Right? Or, lots of ladies here, a bat right? Bar in Hebrew means son. Okay, Bar-nibas. Bat in Hebrew means daughter, right? So you've heard of a Bar Mitzvah? Right? That's the tradition. But uh, many Jewish people have bat mitzvahs for their daughters as well. Right? So it is the daughter of the covenant, the son of the covenant. That's what it means. Barnabas. Well, um, after that first missionary journey, they, they went on a little tour. They went to Cyprus first and then they came back and they did a little tour around what is known as Galatia, the Galatian region, and went through a lot of persecution, a lot of difficulty. Well, when they left Cyprus, and Cyprus is an island, right? Just out in the Mediterranean. And they left Cyprus, and they went back to, uh, to the mainland uh, toward where Syria, Lebanon, that region, and then moved further inland. And they started churches all up in that area. When they landed, Mark, who had been their companion, uh, we find out in Colossians that Mark was also Barnabas's cousin. He left them. He just went back to Jerusalem. So, he didn't hang with them. So, they continued to work their way and minister and to preach. And again, they, you know, they went through a lot of persecution from both, the under, underwent a lot of persecution from both Gentiles and Jews. But uh, the Lord was with them, and they were successful, and they, they, brought many people to Christ, and they started many churches, and then they went back to Antioch. They had to answer these questions about bringing the gospel to the Gentiles because the more conservative Jews just didn't, really didn't think that that was right, or if it was, then the Gentiles needed to follow the Jewish law. And there are still people today that think we need to follow the Jewish law. But the decision that was handed down by the the apostles was, no, the Gentiles don't need to follow the Jewish law. They don't need to worry about clothing, and they don't need to worry about, you know, uh, Sabbath keeping or eating certain foods, or more specifically, not eating certain foods. Um, we're, We're Jewish folks, and we need to follow the law of Moses. That's our history. That's who we are. But none of us receive salvation by keeping the law. We're all saved by grace, and Peter really backed that up because Peter was the first one that God spoke to uh, and told him to go specifically to the home of a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius and bring the gospel to him. Well, they weren't even supposed to eat in the homes of Romans or any Gentile. It was, you know, that was, that was forbidden. But it was an angel of the Lord that spoke to Cornelius. Cornelius sent men to find Peter, because the angel said, I want you to find this uh, this Peter named Simon, Simon Peter, and he's staying at the home of another Simon. Which, by the way, Simon was an extremely common name. In fact, probably the most common male name at this time period, right? And it, it, it's it's Simon was the 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 Greek, but it came from the Hebrew Shimeon, Simeon, right? And as we're going to see if we arrive there today, which I think we will, uh, in Second Peter, Peter is called Simeon instead of Simon. But Simon was the, was the name that was used by Greeks. And so Cornelius sent these messengers to go find Peter, who was staying at the home of another Simon, Simon the Tanner. And Peter had this vision on the rooftop. And this vision is repeated twice in Acts. In Acts 10 and 11, it's repeated. So it's obviously quite important. And in this vision, Peter was kind of half asleep, half awake. You ever been there? We're just kind of in that, that I think they call it lucid dreaming. Do you know what that is? So it's kind of like you're half asleep, half awake, and things that are going on around you play into the dream. Have you ever had the radio playing and the lyrics to some song are in your dream? right? Or have you ever had, you, you left the TV on and you kind of fell asleep, and whatever they're doing, you're making up your own story to what they're doing, right? There's, you know, whatever's going on here, you know, this dialogue, these explosions, whatever, you got your own story going on. It's called lucid dreaming. Um, so, interestingly, Peter was was in that sort of state when he received a vision from the Lord. There was a, a large white sheet that descended from heaven, and all of these animals were going all around the, the on this sheet. Well... For the purpose of dietary laws, for the purpose of eating, not all of the animals that were running around this sheet were considered clean, according to Jewish law. And there were a lot of rules and regulations uh, that have actually been augmented uh, in today's Jewish dietary code, the, the so-called kosher code. But um, Jewish people, wouldn't, for instance, you're familiar with the fact that Jewish people will not eat pork, right? Muslims won't eat pork either. Because one of the prohibitions is uh, you, you can't eat from a split-hoofed animal that does not chew the cud. You can eat from a split-hoofed animal if it does chew the cud, right? Chew the cud. I, you know, farmers, ranchers, you understand, you know, they, mm, 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 they just, you know, they just kind of work that grass around, right? Pigs don't chew the cud. So, pigs are unclean. Not supposed to eat pig. So presumably, I'm just, you know, it doesn't tell us which unclean animals were hopping around on the sheet. But just imagine pigs hopping around on the sheet. And then Peter heard the voice, uh, the voice of an angel, the voice of the Lord, saying, kill and eat, Peter, kill and eat. He sees all these unclean animals. He's like, ah, Lord, I've never, I've never eaten anything unclean. Nothing unclean has ever crossed my life. No. Then the voice said, what God has called clean, you no longer call unclean. What God has made clean, you are to no longer consider unclean. And that happened a couple of times, and the sheet was taken up. And then Peter woke up, there's a knock on the door below. He goes down, he meets these Gentiles, who he's not supposed to eat with, who have told him that their their Lord, Cornelius, has seen a vision of an angel that's said to come find him, and he's to go and preach to them, go and deliver a message to them. So Peter, without any compunction, goes. He brings some companions with him. He's just seen this vision. He's going to be obedient to God, not obedient to his tradition. So he follows them right into the home of this Gentile and preaches. He doesn't even finish the sermon. In the midst of preaching, the Holy Spirit descended in such a way that There was a visible response from all of the people in this house, right? Which in the book of Acts was they they prophesied and they spoke in tongues. These These are both ecstatic acts which would likely make you uncomfortable, okay? So there's prophesying, we normally think of that as like preaching, you know, or you might think of prophecy as foretelling the future. But all through the Old Testament, Prophecy has a very, very ecstatic and and visceral and visible manifestation, right? So, on a couple of occasions, Saul, the first king in Israel, encounters a group of prophets, comes under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and begins to prophesy with them. Well, he prophesied all night, and whatever this was caused him to sweat to such a degree that he took off his outer garments and had to lay and cool off. Obviously, that's not just standing there and preaching calmly like I am right now. There's something that's going on there. It's visible. Um, But this happened every time the gospel moved into a new region, it would be validated. They would see that, that the Holy Spirit had come upon people because there was a visible response. And they spoke in tongues. Well, if you remember that from the, uh, the second chapter of Acts, there were uh, tongues as a fire. And if you've ever watched a fire, you know, it's got little, these flames that come up, they look like tongues. So imagine that, landing above all the heads of these 120 disciples in the upper room, and they began to speak in other tongues, other languages. Well, I won't get into the nature of that miracle, um, Suffice it to say, they were speaking languages that they did not know, and the purpose there was obviously to demonstrate that the Holy Spirit had come upon them, but it was so the gospel could be preached to everyone in their own native language. So it has been said, uh, for folks that are bilingual or trilingual, um, the, the language you dream in is your native language. Whatever you were raised speaking the language you dream in is what has become your native language, right? so here are these people in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost from all over the world, and they hear the gospel being preached in their native language, what's most comfortable for them. so those of us that have learned other languages, you have to sit there and listen very carefully, and you're you're always translating in your head so you 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 know you you become prolific, proficient at a language when you no longer have to translate the word. When I no longer have to go, oh, well, this means this in your language. When it just comes, right? Then I'm fluent. Then I'm just speaking because I'm thinking in that language. And that's the ideal, of course, um, but these disciples were not fluent in these languages, and they were speaking them, and people were hearing them. Now, the miracle could have been that they were speaking in a neutral, heavenly language of some sort, and then the Holy Spirit was coming upon all of those who had faith and giving them the gift of interpretation. And that's how I think it went down. So if you were to hear them speaking, and you did not have that Holy Spirit, that gift of interpretation from the Holy Spirit, it would sound like a bunch of nonsense to you. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, the disciples were accused of being drunk. In fact, the first thing that Peter said when he preached his sermon was, these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only 9 in the morning. You've got to be a pretty serious alcoholic to get lit at 9 a.m., right? So nonetheless... That's, uh, that, that's the, the, the early nature of that. So Peter went. He preached. Cornelius becomes the first um, uh, official Gentile believer, and um, that's demonstrated by prophecy and tongues. So Peter was the one that advocated for Paul and, at this point, Barnabas when they came to present their case that, you know what, the Gentiles are not keeping your dietary laws. They're not focused on keeping a Saturday Sabbath and and watching all these rules and washing cups and and cooking in certain things. No, they're just being Gentiles, and they've chosen to give their lives to Jesus, and God's validated that by all these miracles that he's worked among them. So James, who was the first pastor in the Jerusalem church and the half-brother of Jesus, uh, confers with these other apostles, and they come up with this decision that the Gentiles do not have to keep the Jewish law. They just have to keep from offending the Jews by not eating meat uh, that has been, uh, that has blood in it, okay, That uh, that has not been properly slaughtered, right? Don't eat meat that has blood in it, that is strangled. Now, that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to us, but there was this serious prohibition among the Jews of eating blood, and that goes all the way back to the Noahic covenant, right? So, Genesis chapter 9, Noah is told, if a man sheds blood, then by man shall his blood be shed. In other words, murder always requires the death penalty from God's perspective, And the reason is because the life is in the blood. You take a life, you owe your life. Now, of course, this didn't apply to accidental situations. In fact, that's why they were the cities of refuge in the Old Testament. Um, If you killed somebody, there wasn't a police force that would chase you down. It was their relatives. So every person would have um, a kinsman redeemer. And there were many purposes for the kinsman redeemer, but one of them was to uh, to get revenge if anything bad happened. So whoever your kinsman redeemer is, right, this would be the word. So the kind of the, I guess the our our way of understanding that would be uh, godparents, right? So you've got your parents, and heaven forbid if anything were to happen to your parents, then the godparents have agreed to step in and raise you, right? So. Um, But as a child, your kinsman redeemer would be the closest person to you, which would be your father. So what happens is you got somebody that, you know, rapes a young lady. You got somebody that, you know, kills someone. Then that father is responsible to go and get revenge. And he would go and kill him. Well, what happens if it's an accident? And the example that's given in the Old Testament is someone's using an axe and the axe head flies off and hits the other person. Well, they may still come after you anyway. So they could run to these cities of refuge where they would be safe. There was no... And now, the City of Refuge wouldn't just make any murderer safe if they, they would hold a, essentially a trial, and if it was demonstrated that this person had run to the City of Refuge, but that they had committed an act of premeditated murder, they would simply turn them over to the Kinsman Redeemer. That didn't save you. It saved you if you were in a situation that we would call the equivalent of manslaughter today. Right? So let's say you're, you're driving your car down the road and heaven forbid, somebody comes riding out in front of you on their bike and you hit them and they go flying off, they back, bang their head and they die. Well, their family's probably not going to be terribly happy with you. Back then, they could chase you down and kill you. Well, if you went to the city of refuge, then you were safe. Very, very much a symbol of, I think, salvation there um, in, the, in the scripture. So, um, continuing with the, with the story here, Paul and Barnabas... Get, get cleared that the Gentiles do not have to keep the law. They just can't eat meat that's been strangled or with blood in it because that would offend the Jews because of their prohibition of, of eating blood. So in other words, you couldn't eat rare anything. Anybody like rare meat? No. Medium rare is supposed to be how you eat your steak, okay? Rare is like cold in the middle. Medium rare, it's pink in the middle, but it's, it's warm. But they wouldn't really eat medium rare. They'd have to eat medium on up. But it would have to be properly slaughtered. Okay, so you you couldn't eat what was strangled uh, meat with blood in it, and um, you couldn't uh, you were not to be involved in eating meat sacrificed to idols. That was another thing that was that was said of the Gentiles. Well, eating meat sacrificed to idols could offend the Jews, but it was also, I think, a way of keeping the Gentiles from offending other Gentiles who were idol worshipers, right? So, what would happen in a temple is they would offer meat to an idol. Let's say it was Apollo. Offer this meat to Apollo. Well, Apollo's not alive. Apollo's not real. Apollo doesn't eat the meat. So, it offered to him and then they would sell it in the meat market. And then people would buy it and they would eat it. Well, some people who bought it felt like they were participating in Apollo worship, the worship of Apollo and Apollo's altar as the result of that, right? This was offered to him, now I'm eating it, so it's kind of like, like, like a communion thing, right? Like we did Sunday. Um, but Christians realize Apollo's not real, and I don't believe in him, and I have the freedom to eat this meat and Paul said yes you do but if it causes offense then you don't do it well James and the apostles said we don't want you to eat meat sacrificed to idols because we don't want it to be offensive to either Jew or Gentile and then the final thing was this would be offensive to everyone and it demonstrates that God's morality did not change or that he didn't lighten the rules for the Gentiles and that was that they were not to be involved in any kind of sexual immorality which means any sort or any form of sexual activity outside of the marriage of one man and one woman for life, okay? So they went back to Antioch, and they stayed in Antioch for another year or so, and then they said, you know what? We need to go back, and we need to encourage all of these churches in primarily the Galatian region, but at Cyprus as well, that we started. We need to see how they're doing. So they got ready to go, and Barnabas wants to bring along John Mark again. And Paul said, no. No, 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 no. He left us the first time. He's not going. Now, Barnabas was this guy that was obviously son sort of encouragement, very forgiving, very encouraging. Everybody was scared of the Apostle Paul before he was called the Apostle Paul. He was called Saul. And Barnabas was the one that went and tracked him down and brought him back to Antioch. Barnabas was the one that was always on the side of the underdog. And that's what he was trying to do. Now, it didn't hurt that Mark was his cousin, right? But um, Paul would ha- not have it. So it says, and this is in Acts, it says the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, these two towers of faith who launched the church in the Gentile world, it was so sharp that they parted ways. Barnabas went to Cyprus. Well, that makes sense. That's where he's from. Those were the first churches that they started, and he brought John Mark with him. And Saul was, it says, that he was commended by the church, so they apparently trusted his decision, and he went overland and went back uh, toward, to the churches that they had started, taking another direction, instead of going back out to Cyprus and back by ship like they did the first time. Well, he didn't go alone. I want you to notice, when the Lord sends people out, he sends them two by two. When he sent the disciples out, when Jesus himself sent the disciples out, there were 12, he sent the 12 out, but he also sent 70 out, if we see in, in Luke. He didn't send them out alone. He sent them out two by two. He always sent them out with a partner. So, because Paul didn't have Barnabas, they sent him out with another partner, Silas or Silvanus, right? See, I can preach a long time just on two words, right? By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. Um, so at this point in time, uh, interpreters believe that 1 Peter was written sometime in the, in the 60s A.D., The Apostle Paul likely met his death in about 64 A.D. This could have been written close to that time. Um, Interpreters believe, and I believe, that this Silvanus is the same Silas that was the missionary journey partner of the Apostle Paul in that second missionary journey. Um, He is, that is Silas is, or Silvanus is, the amanuensis for this letter. Peter didn't write anything, as in write it down. He spoke it, and it was written down for him. Most of Paul's letters are the same way. He didn't write them himself. In fact, probably all of Paul's letters are that way, with the possible exception of Philemon, which is really short. But he speaks all of them. And in fact, if you're following them, if you're paying attention to them, Like, for instance, 1 Corinthians, when Paul said, hey, I didn't baptize anybody over there. Oh, wait a minute. I I might have baptized this person and this person and this person, but if there were any others, I didn't know. It's written exactly like That's somebody talking, right? If you were writing, you would stop and go, oh, wait a minute. That's right. And you would just leave all that out. But they didn't leave that out because he was speaking, and there was an amanuensis, there was a secretary that was writing it down. Which, by the way, in my opinion... This is what leads to differences in the letters that are coming from the same person. Sometimes, for instance, I said this when we went over First and Second Thessalonians. There are those that say, well, there are these differences between first and Second Thessalonians. There are differences between First uh, and Second Timothy and the other of Paul's letters. But the change in audience from a church, say, First Corinthians, is to a church, and First Timothy is to a person, but it's to a person, Timothy. And it is intended to be read by him and for himself, and also by him to the church in Ephesus. So, who you're writing to is going to make a difference in how you write. But also, who's writing it down, and how much, uh, you know, of their grammar and understanding gets put into the letter. If you if you are seeing what I'm saying, so I have written a, uh, a number of things, and um, I've never had an editor. Which is very helpful by the way, if you're a writer and I have a friend who is a professional writer um, and he's good uh, what I am to preaching he is to writing and i yeah I really enjoy his writing. He majored in journalism I think he has a master's degree in journalism he's working for uh, a Christian uh, organization in phoenix arizona it's a it's a uh, they they defend Uh, churches and Christian organizations and so forth. But in any event, uh, I sent him a couple of chapters from a book that I've been working on forever. And when I got them back, they were different, but not radically different, but better. He just cleaned up some of the language and showed me what he did. I was like, oh, well, that's, yeah, that's good. I like that. Because the written word is just not the same as the spoken word. They're not identical. So I'm thinking that especially with folks like Peter, there's the possibility. And Peter, do you remember what Peter did for a living? What did he do for a living before Jesus called him? Two weeks ago, you heard it. He's a fisherman. Remember? Jesus got in his boat, pushed off from the shore, and preached. And then it was like Jesus, the preacher, telling the fisherman what to do. Hey, let's let's go out there and, and do some fishing. Lord, we, we worked all night, and we caught nothing. But, at your word, we're going to go out, and we're going to let the nets down. I know that Peter didn't believe he was going to catch anything by his response. They caught so much that their boats started to sink. Peter immediately throws himself down in front of the Lord, once they pulled it to the shore, presumably and says, Lord, go away from me, I'm a sinful man, because he knew he was a doubter. And probably, if he's anything like me, or if I'm anything like him, I'd have been grumpy. There's plenty of times when I do what I think the Lord's led me to do, and I don't like it. And I really didn't want to do it, but I did it because I was supposed to do it. And I thought that's what the Lord wanted regardless of whether I thought I was going to get any reward for it or not. In fact, sometimes I'm like, you know what? The reward's not worth this. (laughs) I'm sorry, Lord. This This is annoying, and I don't like it, and I'm tired, and I don't want to do this. I've had folks that I've taken on mission trips in the past, and there's this romantic idea about the mission trip. Oh, we're going to go, and we're going to help these poor people that are in need, and they're just going to be so grateful. You know, mission trips are work. They're just hard work. Even if you don't go on the style of mission trip where you're doing, like, labor. Every mission trip is work. It's just, it's hard, and it's tiring, and people are not always appreciative. They're not always, oh, thank you so much for coming and bringing the gospel to us. Sometimes they're just annoying, you know, because they're just people. People are sheeple, and sheep are dirty, right? Sheep stink, but they're not the enemy. That's what a friend of mine used to say. So that's by Silvanus, a faithful brother. Silas is likely in Rome because as Acts concludes, that's where Paul is. Paul has been brought, and I won't go into that lengthy story, but Paul was arrested in Jerusalem for something he didn't do. He appealed to Caesar after two years sitting in uh, jail in Caesarea Philippi, and they shipped him off to give his appeal to Caesar in Rome. When he got to Rome, he told the Jewish people there, "Hey, I haven't done anything against our people. I don't know what you've heard." Um and he was put in a rented house. So, you pretty much had to pay your your own way back then if you went to jail. If you didn't have friends who would come and bring you food, it wasn't just, "Hey, I'm going to put some money in your, you know, your account or whatever so you can get some snacks or whatever." No, you didn't get fed. Your friends had to bring you food, period. So, um he was, Paul was a man of means, and it wasn't just because he was, he was banking as the result of um, preaching the gospel. He was a tent maker, and he, so he was what we call bivocational. And he had means, but he also had friends, and he had these churches that were supporting him. So at the end of Acts, he's in a rented house, under house arrest. He couldn't just move around, didn't have an ankle monitor on because they didn't have those back then, but it would be about like that, right? Ah, that's right. Your ankle monitor was, you probably had a shackle on your wrist or on your ankle, and you were shackled to a Roman soldier. In fact, that's probably what was going on in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 6, if you remember that sermon that I preached a couple of months ago, when we had little Asher Wilson up here, and we put the armor on him, that was likely the Apostle Paul under arrest at that point, and he's just looking at a Roman soldier that's right next to him, going, yeah, you need to have, uh, yeah, the breastplate of righteousness, so you've got to have the helmet of salvation. Oh, yeah, the, the greaves, the shoes of the gospel of peace. He's probably just looking at the soldier that he's chained to, right? But that's how Acts concludes. He's in a rented house, chained to a Roman soldier, but he's given freedom to have his friends, and to preach the gospel. So basically, he's, he's being protected by the Roman Empire and preaching the gospel. But he's going to have to go through this series of hearings, or trials, if you will, before the emperor. And at this point, the emperor was Nero, and this is not a good guy. And it is likely that Paul thought that Nero was a better guy than Nero actually was. Nero turned out to be a really bad guy. And as a matter of fact, Paul ended up getting beheaded. Now, that was a nice way to die, and it's gruesome, I understand, but it's sudden, and it's over. Crucifixion, on the other hand, is not. That's how Peter died, by the way. A few years after Paul, Peter was not a Roman citizen, and so they were going to crucify him. The church history has it that Peter said, no, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. So they crucified him upside down. Wow. Tragic. We know he's in Rome. Uh, that is, Peter is in Rome because he says, She who is in Babylon, um, I've written you briefly, exhorting and declaring what is the true grace of God. Stand, stand for a minute. She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. This is Rome, so Babylon was the nation that took Israel captive in 586 BC, and Rome was the, uh, the empire that was in control of Israel at this point in time, and in fact, uh, Babylon, the, the great harlot, is Rome, the city of Rome, and we see that in Revelation, right? Right? So, she who is in Babylon, so that's the church in Rome, and this is where Peter has written this letter, from where he has written this letter. This could, as I said, explain the presence of Silas. If this is late, then Paul's in jail awaiting trial, Silas is in Rome with Paul, and here's Peter. So, there was a point in time when both Peter and Paul are in Rome, and uh, this factors, uh, this is really big as far as uh, church history is concerned, right? Right? we know it's the church, she who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen. Um, the chosen people, originally just ethnic Jews, those who were literally, uh, genetically, biologically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But because of Jesus, then the offer is extended to the Gentiles, and we come in through faith. And then the Apostle Paul said, yes, but we are all saved by faith. The Jews don't get in by virtue of their ethnicity or how they've been raised in their religion. All people must come through faith in Christ. But the idea of the chosen is God's people, those who have responded to the gospel, those who responded to faith. So that, if you have Christ, if you responded to Jesus, you're one of the chosen people. It's not just the Jews who are chosen people. There's a lot of folks that really are um, into that uh, idea of the chosen people and we're descended from Israel and so forth. I mentioned last night to our children in this room that I had a conversation two nights ago with a friend of a former mentee, a a young man, I guess he was a member of this church, um, but a young man that I mentored. And he FaceTimed me and wanted me to talk to this friend of his. And this friend of his I'm talking to um, starts talking about, no, you have to believe in the name and the only name that you can believe in. There's no other name. And uh, if the church is, there's, there's no church that's right and you shouldn't go to church at all. And um, just a lot of crazy stuff. But I think that this fella comes from a group of people that Craig encountered 20 years ago Uh, in downtown New York. So Craig went on a mission trip uh, to New York, Times Square. He actually stayed just a couple of blocks off of Times Square. There's a Nazarene church that owns a theater there. And they had, like, these rooms up above there, and Craig stayed there. And he went to Harlem every day, rode the subway to Harlem, and played soccer and baseball and all kinds of stuff. But he encountered these... uh, they're called Black Israelites, and their idea is that they are the true Israel. And it was, This was out on Times Square, and this fellow that I was talking to had that same idea, you know, nobody else is getting in, it's just us, we're the true Israel. Well, this is, you know, you, you see this all over, you see churches that are like this. You know, we're the only church that's getting in um only if you believe exactly the way we do or practice your faith exactly as we do are you getting into heaven um there's a there's a joke that is told about that i guess i'll i'll tell it to you just so you have something to smile about all right so you could name a number of different churches that have this very very tight idea of only they are getting into heaven um the uh, the most conservative wing of churches of Christ are like this. Only we're getting into heaven. Missionary Baptist churches are like this. Only we're getting into heaven. Right? Um, Catholics to an extreme. Right? Orthodox, call them Catholics, are like this. So pick whichever one you want. Uh, since I come out of a a Baptist background, not missionary Baptist, but a Baptist background, I'll use, I'll use that for my joke. So, this is one of those St. Peter jokes. So, there's a new person being shown around heaven. St. Peter's showing them around heaven, right? And they're walking by these different groups of people. And they walk by this group of people, and they're, all, they're, they're kneeling, and then they're standing, and then they're kneeling. And he said, yeah, those are the Catholics. Keep going. Gets to this another group of people, and they're jumping around, and they've got tambourines, and they're, you know, getting, a, oh, those are the Pentecostals, right? They keep walking, and then there's this very, very high wall. And the person asks St. Peter, he says, well, 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 who, who, who is that? Who's in there? And, and St. Peter said, shh, those are the missionary Baptists. They think they're the only ones that are here. So this is kind of like that, right? There can be some well-meaning people that have these sorts of ideas as well. Um, but nonetheless, uh, we are the chosen, not just the people that are sitting in this room or the people that are part of Lifewell Church or the people that are Baptist or evangelical or, you know, charismatic or Pentecostal, or whatever. we who have chosen to put our faith in Jesus, Jew, Gentile. Whatever your ethnicity, whatever your history, whatever your background, we come through Jesus, we all do. That's she who is in Babylon. Then he says, likewise, uh, so, does my, uh, so does Mark, my son. Well, this is John Mark. This is the one that I referred to earlier that took off on, on Paul and Barnabas. Now, I have this idea. The earliest gospel, there's four gospels. What are the four gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So Mark is the second in order, but Mark, by almost every reckoning, there there are very few Bible scholars that would say otherwise. Mark is the earliest gospel. And it may have been written down as early as the mid-40s A.D. That's very early. The latest gospel is John, and it was likely written down sometime before uh, the, the fall of, the, uh, of uh, the, the temple and the wall in Jerusalem and so forth. But um, certainly late 60s, there are other interpreters that would put it even later than that, after that. But the earliest gospel is Mark. Well, it's called Mark because we believe that John Mark, this very person right here, wrote it down. The early church, in fact, it is uh, a historian by the name of Papias. And we don't have his original writings anymore. We just have fragments of his writings in uh, the, the works of another historian named Eusebius. So, Papias is an early 2nd century, as in the 100s AD, historian. And Eusebius is a, I believe, fourth-century historian. Eusebius preserved some of Papias' writings. And among those, he indicates, Eusebius says that Papias said that Mark wrote down the recollections of Peter, the preaching of Peter. Well, um, I can read Greek, but I can't read it well enough to tell you what good Greek looks like in what literary bad Greek not it's not bad but in you know some people write really well okay from a literary perspective and other people just write well mark is kind of like somebody that just writes this is not a literary genius but also mark shows signs that it is it is preaching or speaking that is just being written down word, word for word. The word uh, for immediately in Greek, uthus, if I remember correctly, is in Mark something like 48 times. Jesus is always jumping up and immediately going over here, and then he immediately went over here, and then he immediately, he's always immediately doing everything. You know, So if you were sitting down and thinking, mm, I, I might be using that word too much. Have you ever written something and then you went back and edited it yourself and you're like, Ah, I used that word like three times, so I need to use a synonym, or maybe I need to take that out, or, you know, that sort of thing. But that didn't happen. It was It's just there. It's just, <laughs> there it is, right? And it's the Word of God. So the Lord uses all of us. Well, John Mark, it's very likely that John Mark uh, was listening to the preaching and uh, of Peter, very shortly after he left Paul and Silas behind. So you see, God has a purpose. He was spending time with Peter. Well, Peter and Mark had a long and profitable partnership because here's Mark again with Peter at the end of uh, Peter's letter, 1 Peter. And then he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Oh, my. See, today... Kissing is often associated with something that is sexual or sensual, though certainly parents kiss their children. But it's just all been messed up, right? But it was common in the early church to give someone a kiss, and on the lips, by the way, just a a peck. Paul calls it the holy kiss, and uh, the Apostle Paul, that is, encourages it at the conclusion of Romans— 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and 1 Thessalonians. Greet one another with a holy kiss. So here, Peter calls it the kiss of love. What would we do today? We don't need to do that. All right? Especially in the COVID era. But hugs, I think, is what we would do. It's the holy hug. Right? So if you're a lady, you get a side hug from me. That's what you get. Okay, but it's a holy hug. It's a meaningful hug, right? Um, all right, and then he says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Um, that, in fact, is what we always need, right? And this is, this is a central idea in Hebrew thinking. Peace is shalom. Can you say shalom? It's not just the absence of conflict, it's just, it's not just, hey, relax, relax. It's wellness. It's wholeness. That's what we need, right? And Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives. So let your heart not be worried and let it not be fearful. Fearful. That's the peace that is offered to you and I in Christ. Notice, peace to all of you who are in Christ. That's what gives you peace. So this is you. Hold up your thumb. And this is Christ. Who can get to you now? Nobody. That's peace. Amen? All right. I didn't even get to 2 Peter. I will next week. But I did get to get to the end of 1 Peter. Amen?